You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Love is action in our communities. Love is thinking outside of yourself. Love is questioning if I do this thing or if I take this thing or if I say that thing, who am I going to support? Who am I going to harm? What am I feeding and what am I starving? And I think, yeah, the older I get and the more spaces I get access to, the more I really believe with my whole chest that our communities do it best. This event was presented in partnership with Black and Bright as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program. Hello. Before we begin, I'll just uh, extend an acknowledgement um, to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We are on unceded land tonight. I'm a visitor on this country. My people are Jingli Mudbra, so uh, I just want to pay my respects that I'm able to be here tonight as a visitor to this country. Um, I am going to introduce, before we begin our panel, our yarn bomber for tonight, Emily Wells, who is um, going to do a little bit of a performance piece for you all. Uh, Emily Wells is a proud Camillo produce, producer and playwright, currently working with Yurumboy Festival. As a playwright, Emily's debut play, Face to Face, premiered at Metro Arts as part of as part of Playlab's Theatre's 2022 season. Emily was selected for Playlab Theatre's year-long script development program, Alpha Processing, and the inaugural Sparks program, delivered in partnership with QPAC and Moogalin Performing Arts. As a producer, Emily has produced small to large-scale performances, gatherings and creative developments with emerging to established First Nations creatives across Australia. Since being awarded the Emerging Female Arts Leader at the Matilda Awards 2020, Emily has worked closely with leading independents and companies such as Ilbajiri Theatre Company, Karul Projects, Digi Youth Arts, Queensland Theatre, La Boite Theatre Company and Walt Disney World. So please welcome Emily. The first time I knew my mum loved me. No, the first time I recognised love was an action. I was young, it was hot, my hair was more curly and much more strawberry blonde than the auburn that it is now. My skin was still this pale and my mum's, as always, ten shades darker. We were at a park or a beach or in a car, where we were doesn't really matter. What matters is that it was hot and we were chasing down an ice cream. My brother and I chose Paddle Pops, Rainbow, of course. My dad, a Golden Gay Time. And for my mum, a Cornetto. Now, I'm not going to lie and say I remember slurping down the Paddle Pop like it was yesterday or how the rainbow stained my favourite shirt or made my palms all sticky, although I'm sure that it did. What I do remember is my mum, looking as young as she still looks today. I see her turning to me, and without a second thought, handing me the bottom of her Cornetto. The solid milk chocolate reward at the bottom of the wafer cone. The be-all and end-all reason that anyone pushes through a Cornetto. (laughs) And yes, I know what you're thinking. There are a number of things that are more impressive than a tiny bit of chocolate at the bottom of a basic brand ice cream cone. Yes. But for this rosy-cheeked little redhead, it was everything. My worldview was basically shattering. I thought my mum had lost it. But I was young, 
And there was a chunk of chocolate dangling in front of me. So before I could ponder any longer or worse, give mum a chance to realise what she's giving up, I ripped it out of her hands and no doubt swallowed it whole. And now I'm here telling you this. I'm not as young. It's still hot. My hair's still curly. My skin's still pale and my mum's still ten shades darker. But, and I don't mean to brag, but... I can afford to buy my own Cornettos now. <laughs> and with that, I can recognise what mum did for what it was. It was love. It was love and it was sacrifice in action. And I am very quickly learning that it wasn't the first thing she gave up for me. At an age younger than I am now, she left her heart on her country. She left the comfort of my nan's arms for a quote-unquote better education, a better chance. She gave up the warmth of her four sisters by her side when they left to retreat back to our homelands. This was all before she gave up her body, her blood, her sweat, her womb for me to have a home. For me to grow from a pea to a peach to the size of a lemon, no sorry, a watermelon, and from that grow into the 27-year-old, fair-skinned, red-headed, proud-as-punch Camillora woman standing in front of you. This black woman here with 20-20 vision who can see clear as day that my mum was but one of the thousands of black women who have sacrificed for me to be here. Black women like my nan, who sacrificed the satisfaction of screaming in the face of the welfare manager who dared point out a strand of hair out of place on her spotless six kids like the black women moved off country, the aunties made to hold their mother tongue, forced to let our language go to survive, the titters who had to speak the language of this land in secret. Through to the women of today who continue to give up their safety, their comfort, by being the only black face in a whitewashed room so us young ones can strut up in here like we own it. I'm still young, it's still hot, Still red, still pale, still black. Still buying my own Cornettos. And I think of having my own little one someday. My own future auntie, future matriarch. And how I will not hesitate to give her the best bit of my Cornetto. But if Cornettos make it to the generation after us, my grandbaby's generation, I hope that that is the only sacrifice my black baby has to make. Oh, no. That was so beautiful. Thank you, Emily. What a beautiful way to start tonight's event um, and just centering that love and sacrifice, I think, is a really nice way. So thank you so much. Um, so welcome to tonight's event. Um, this event is part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling and if you're anything like me suffering on an extreme pollen day, you'll have your <laughs> tissues ready. Um, the Spring Fling's on until the end of the week. Um, the bookseller for tonight is Readings and all the um, panellists tonight will be signing copies of their books at the back after the event. Um, and just lastly, acknowledging that um, this uh, panel is presented in partnership with Black and Bright and that the Spring Fling is supported by the Melbourne City uh, <coughs> Revitalisation Fund, Victorian Government and City of Melbourne Partnership. 
So my name is Bridget Caldwell Bright. I'm a Jingly Munbra woman. Um, I am a freelance editor, but I currently work at the ABC. Um, and joining me tonight um, are these three incredible women who I'm going to try and do justice. Oh, and I just want to point out that half of my notes tonight are actually these three panelists' bios. Um, so forg <laughs> forgive me if I um, am catching myself out of breath while trying to get through them. Um, so first up, we have Ali Kobe Ekerman. Uh, her first collections of poetry, Little Bit Long Time and Kami, both quickly sold out their first print runs. Her verse novel, His Father's Eyes, was published by OUP in 2011, and her second verse novel, novel Ruby Moonlight, won the inaugural Kuril Dagan National Manuscript Editing Award, and the 2013 New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for Poetry and Book of the Year Award. In 2017, Ali won the Wyndham Campbell Prize worth $215,000. <clears throat> Dr. Amy Thunig is a Gamilaro woman and mother who resides on the unceded lands of the Awabakal people. An academic in the field of education, Amy is also a director at Story Factory. In Redfern and in 2019 gave their TEDx talk, Disruption is not a dirty word. As well as being on various committees and councils, Amy is a media commentator and panelist, regularly appearing on television programs such as ABC's The Drum and writing for publications such as BuzzFeed, Sydney Book Review, Indigenous X, The Guardian and more. <coughs> and finally, Dr. Jackie Huggins, a member of the Bidra and Biri Gubbi Juru peoples of Queensland, in popular demand as a speaker on Aboriginal issues, she is a well-known historian and author with articles published widely in Australia and internationally. Her acclaimed biography of her mother, Auntie Rita, was published in 1994, and in 2002, her biography of her father, Jack of Hearts, was published this year along with Sister Girl. She was the former co-chair, National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, former member of National Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation, co-chair Reconciliation Australia, the State Library Board of Queensland, and the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. She was co-commissioner for Queensland for the inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, and for several years was a judge of the annual David Unipon Award. So can we just while I catch my breath, give a round of applause to our panel. Thank you. Um, so in tonight's uh, event, we're going to be hearing um, from voices from different generations and backgrounds um, coming together to explore First Nations community and family networks and how they relate to conceptions of motherhood, parenting and the transmission of First Nations knowledge systems. So to begin in talking about First Nations matriarchy, our First Nations matriarchs are healers, storytellers, caregivers, truth seekers, childminders. Um, it's not a hierarchy of power uh, and First Nations matriarchy is something that binds our communities, countries and culture together. So tonight will be a really insightful conversation um, about women in particular that we know, um, that we love, that we've learned from, and of course the women that these panellists are. Um, so my first question, uh, it is a privilege to be raised in a culture that understands the power of the First Nations matriarchy. Uh, you know, a kinship system that values the role of women as equal to all living things, not just men, and a matriarchy whose love 
uh, whose power comes from an enduring love of blackfellas. So I really want to talk about this idea of, you know, and all three of your books encompass this in their own different ways, this idea of intergenerational care um, as, you know, mothers, children, aunties, cousins, sisters, um, and what this looks like in each of your lives. So maybe, Ali, if you wanted to start us off. I'm just going to make a mention that I hated that bio. Because <laughs> I knew you were going to hate it. Because of that financial remark. Now, that's oh, not yeah. an Aboriginal bio. I mm. don't feel. Mm. I'm not defined by that money. And if the truth be known, the American um, government um, taxed me on half of that. Yeah. And... Um, uh, and so it's not it's not truthful, yeah. which leads mm. directly into my life story. So I was um, stolen from my uh, birth family, and I grew up with German Lutherans. So my first thirty four years of family was from a culture that wasn't mine, mm. um, and. Um, <coughs> And we grew up with a grand respect for the oldest women in, um, in, in that family. It was still a family. Um, and um, probably sometimes my brother and I are a little bit sure of our place in that family. And Grandma, um, my um, adopted mother's mother, she was quite a severe old woman and um, we grew up with lots of rules and regulations um, but I grew to love her I don't think I knew I loved her until um, she died but there was something about her I loved her boundaries because the world outside of um, out of her you know I, apron strings was even more confusing and quite cruel. Um, she loved to garden. She grew flowers for a, for a living. And, um, and I remember um, Grandpa died suddenly and at the age of 70, she learnt to drive so she could still get her fresh flowers down to the bus um, in, in Tanunda. Um, and, you know, like she worked so hard for, for probably a pittance. Um, we became quite friends, uh, good friends, because um, even um, when drugs and alcohol came into my life, she never closed the door on me, and her boundaries remained safe. And I and and so that mark matriarchal respect that I had for her, and this unusual way that she kept me feeling safe, was something that I admire. I did have the privilege to meet my. Um, birth mother um, a few years before um, she passed um, and more probably more profoundly um, that journey took me back to meet my traditional family in the desert and so I was in my late 30s when I believe I really felt the power of matriarchy. Um, I'm choosing not to um, share too much about my people, those women um, and my family who have passed because um, 
I feel mostly quite angry with Australia at the moment. Um, and um, as I become more aware of the um, impact of one uh, event of taking, removing a child from a family and how that continues to almost have a growing impact on my life. And culturally, I remember when I met those old ladies, we only talked about the people that had passed in whispers, mm. very privately. And I'm, um, those matriarchs continue to teach me um, through my culture, through memory and through nature. And more and more I am remembering those really first learnings. So much of culture has become customised, but I'm choosing to remember um, those learnings. Um, I, will, I can mention that, um, you know, there was many. I had the privilege of reading the eulogy at both my mother's um, funerals. Mm. Um, there was a very special auntie who I was supposed to grow up with, who I knew for one year. And, um, and after that year, I asked to call her mother. She um, maybe had been waiting for that because she passed away very quickly. The Kubapiti Kungajuda is an amazing group of um, grandmothers who I knew for a short time, whose words are so profound, who beat the federal government um, and stopped the first um, uh, proposal of a um, nuclear waste dump in South Australia. Another very, yeah. <laughs> yeah, another beautiful um, auntie um, who was my cultural, well, there was a few um, cultural mentors. Um, that have gone. Um, I remember um, one auntie, she was a big law woman. My favourite memory of her, we were driving back from, you know, across the desert from law camp, and she said, we're going hunting now, and the women were all in the back of the car. She had the rifle on the, on the front. <laughs> this woman could do anything, you know. Um, yeah, just powerful, powerful women. And... I think I'm really um, sad and cross with Australia because um, I, I look and I believe and I hope and I trust that I find it hard to find their equivalent. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Thanks, Ali. Um, Amy, did you want to speak about that <coughs> generational care and what it looks like in your life? Yeah, sorry, I'm just processing what, mm. what mm. Ali just shared. That was really special. Um, mm. Yeah, I think for me, the older I get and I think the more I move in new circles, like you, you begin to become successful. And like Ali was saying, it's by that metric that it's not the metric we're raised to mark success with. It's, mm. it's different metrics. And so you begin to get access to new spaces and you begin to unlock access to certain things and... Um, one of the, the things that I've recently unlocked access to is psychology, um, been trying to see a psychologist. And one of the things I butt up against in trying to find good support for my mental health and healing is the ways in which 
the systems of things like psychology will say to you, um, oh, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. You can let that go. That's not your responsibility. And that's because they're coming from this standpoint of individualism, this idea of, well, you can let that go. And no, I can't actually. Um, and it would be wrong of me too. This idea of just because I'm a, a bit better resourced. And for those of you who've already read my book, I come from um, like fairly extreme poverty background, criminalised family with families who had substantial addiction issues and incarceration, um, and but filled with love. And now that I've been able to access more resources in terms of finances, I'm surprised by how I thought having access to resources would give me access to better tools to access certain, to support certain things that I need to support with. And I'm reflecting that actually that's not the case because the Eurocentric system of what health looks like is so lacking in any understanding of community that they're wholly unable to meet my needs. Um, and so I then turn again to my community and I'm finding that healing in the rest that better access to resources can buy you, like having time to rest is a privilege in the colony and um, the support of our communities for me is what has been core to my survival and I have had a life where survival, like as someone who's experienced homelessness and and these kind of, you know, extremes, um, the support of my community has been the difference between surviving or not. And I have been reflecting a lot on the ways in which we care generationally for each other, the way we can have so little from certain standpoints and yet we're willing to share with anyone who comes to our table and that is very generational. You know, my children, I have children myself, and they're raised up knowing that family isn't just, um, you know, me and my siblings. Family is so much broader than that. The the elders that have raised me up from childhood are family. Um, we just had a launch for the first launch for my book up in my home community, up on a Wabakal country, and, you know, elders from the surrounding community came in and, and when I arrived with my children, what I was really happy for them to see was the way in which, you know, everyone was sweeping and wiping tables and really coming in together. Um, and that, like what Emily was saying, love is action in our communities. Love is thinking outside of yourself. Love is questioning if I do this thing or if I take this thing or if I say that thing, who am I going to support? Who am I going to harm? What am I feeding and what am I starving? Um, and I think, yeah, the older I get and the more spaces I get access to, the more I really, really believe with my whole chest that our communities do it best. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really beautiful. Um, Jackie, I want to come to you, but I was hoping that um, you would be able to touch on the idea that you talk about in your book of the mothering tongue mm. and the daughtering tongue mm. and what that perhaps means to you. Sure. Well, um, I have to state um, I am such a privileged Aboriginal woman, privileged in so many ways. Uh, the first thing, of course, has been I've been kept with my family. I've um, had an identity that has been strong and permanent. Uh, as soon as I came out of my mother's womb, um, that was my identity. 
but such an um, incredible, loving woman um, uh, was my mother. She passed about, uh, well, in 1996, she passed, and um, I think about her every single day without, uh, without fear. Um, so having that kind of uh, powerhouse in my life, and my grandmother too. My grandmother, uh, she died though when I was 15 in Sherberg and I didn't get to um, spend that much time with her apart from our visits there uh, quite regularly. My paternal grandmother uh, died um, before my father returned back from uh, being a prisoner of war on the Burma-Thailand Railway. Uh, she died three months before he came home my grandfather had died two years before. So my father essentially came back an orphan um, uh, to his family. But I was grown up by my mother's um, uh, 14 siblings. Um, and my mum was in the middle. And uh, they were all, all shades of the rainbow, actually. You know, there were some fair ones with blue eyes and green eyes. And my mum was quite dark. and. Uh, um, getting on to Emily's, um, you know, her, um, uh, her piece of work there, you know, and we come in all shades and colours of the rainbow. So um, uh, my mum was uh, an incredible woman, an advocate for the 1967 referendum. Uh, she fought um, for that. And, uh, and I also knew um, Ali's mum, who also, um, we fought uh, for stolen generation and reconciliation in the 80s and 90s. And it was a, an honour to know that woman, um, uh, a really wonderful woman. Um, so these are the, the, the kinds of um, matriarchs and uh, my uncles were just uh, incredible as well. You know, such gentlemen, men of honour, um, men of high degree, in fact. Um, uh, you know, I always say they kind of broke the mould, you know, when when those people passed. But we lived to, oh, well, certainly I do, try to live to own up and leave that legacy, but to emulate them as well. And as I get older, you know, I feel this sense of urgency, but uh, also wisdom. Um, and uh, I used to... Um, you know, see that very much in my mother, but I didn't quite understand it, really. Like, she would um, have not an ounce of bitterness about what she had been through. And she was typical of a woman of her generation growing up in Queensland. Um, and I always used to see that as a sign of real weakness, you know. I thought, Mum, why don't you get angry with them, get into them, you know? Uh, but she never did. And she would say, well, that's all part of our history, Jackie. And now I see that for what it is now. It's a sign of strength that, mm. uh, that she uh, possessed. The mothering, uh, fighting with our tongues, she would say, don't worry. It wasn't a perfect relationship, of course, <laughs> as mothers and daughters do. Uh, we had our fights quite often, actually. And uh, she would call it fighting with our tongues. I remember writing her book, 30 years ago almost, and uh, in those days you just had the little cassette things, you know, turn it on, and, and I would turn it off three weeks when we had our fight, you know, <laughs> um, fights, and we'd come
come back together, said, come on, Mum, you know, we need to do this, and she had always no pressure. I want to see this book before I die, <laughs> uh, which she did. She saw it. Um, we had 14 months of good, you know, um, good publicity on it. Um, but the mothering tongue always spoke to me because he was this woman uh, who had every right to hate white people, as I did in those days, um, to really hate what they had done to us. Yet she was so um, incredibly gracious and um, strong and beautiful in terms of her forgiveness. And that's all I can put it down to, her forgiveness. But um, the um, mothering tongue, as she calls it, and fighting with our tongue uh, was a constant um, in our relationship. And uh, as I say, I would actually kill for one of those fights right now. Mm. I would absolutely kill for that. Mm. So, yeah, um, I'll leave it there. Yeah, I think it's such a beautiful representation of that, yeah, mother and daughter love. In, and often those fights end up, you are speaking in different tongues to each other and only a mother and daughter could understand that. I just think it's a really beautiful idea you put into words so well. Um, I want to touch on the term feminism and feminist. And we're talking about identities for First Nations matriarchs and um, Jackie, I think you talk about this in your book. It might have actually been the interview you did with Bell Hooks mm. um, where you... Uh, say that women are colonisers, uh, white women are colonisers too, part of the dominant culture that continually oppress us in this country. And, you know, I know a lot of uh, black women especially are really shying away from that word feminist or identifying with being feminist because, you know, it doesn't encompass how we are all living and breathing and going through it on a daily basis. Mm. Um, and it's a term that historically hasn't included black women. Um, I have a really great quote from Paola Bala, Dr. Paola Bala, sorry, I should say, who says that um, white feminists are trying to break the glass ceilings while black women are just trying to get off the dirt floor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's just stuck with me whenever someone mentions or asks or refers to black women as feminists. Um, so I'm wondering what it means to each of you, whether it's a term you relate to, um, yeah, or what that term feminist means to you. Ali, would you like to start? Um, I don't know if I... I don't really consider myself a feminist, mm. but I will fight for female equality and mm. equity. Um, the elders in the desert, I saw how the men respected the... You know, the, the, the elder men respected, um, uh, particularly um, one grandmother from the Kubipedi Kunga Judah, um, who also was a red band. Um, and um, I got to, I was a bit spoilt in that time coming back to family. Those old people must have known they weren't going to be around for much for very long and of course I was caught up in all the romance of meeting my family and and, um, and being out in the desert and um, 
I spent, you know, they spent a lot of time with me and I watched the love of those old people, you know. Um, I saw that love replicated um, in the Northern Territory when stolen generations would get, um, um, you know, together. And um, one particular day in Alice Springs, um, the Croker Island, um, you know, adult children were all together and I just saw this particular way that they'd learnt to care for each other mm. and to me that was the feminism that I wanted to strive mm. for was this beautiful equal way of being because mm. I I hadn't really seen that in the in my adopted family because the women work so damn hard and the men were out on tractors um, and yeah I just didn't didn't see it um, my adopted parents were very caring for each other but I'm talking generally I didn't see that mm -hmm. so um, yeah I'm not yeah I'm not sure it is yeah it's interesting in that um, the idea that to be fighting for equality or fighting for equity means to be showing love and showing love in a way that is reciprocal in that way I think is a really beautiful way to describe what not necessarily feminism but what that looks like to you um Jackie could you speak a little bit about whether because I know you just mentioned back you know writing the book with your mum that back mm. in those days you did hate white people and you were angry mm. and I wonder whether that's shifted over time or how you feel do you identify with the word feminist at all Oh, yes, you know, my attitude has changed. In fact, some of my best friends are white women mm. and they're in the audience <laughs> tonight. Thanks, Maria. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, my attitudes certainly have changed because my mum used to say, don't hate white people because you're actually hating part of yourself. And I would respond to her, you mean the rapists and, and the men that took my grandmothers by force in the cattle industry and we don't know where our white blood comes from, but I pray it's Irish. That's a joke. <laughs> you can laugh. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was kind of bounced that off and poor mum, I could see her face now, you know, being kind of a bit wounded by that. Mm. Um, but uh, getting back to, to the, uh, the, the feminism, so I started writing this stuff in the 80s. And I started writing uh, this stuff that I would hope that would define us as black women. And I was taken uh, by Alice Walker and her take on um, uh, the term she used as womanism. And, uh, you know, the colour purple is to lavender and, and, and so forth. Um, so I thought we really need, I would love to define a term for us as, uh, as uh, Aboriginal women here mm. in our country. The nearest I can come to it is titterism mm. or titterhood mm. or, the, or the titterhood. And I know that Anita Heiss and other writers refer to that as well, you know. So um, um, I thought, yep, that's me. And so people ask me, am I a feminist? No, I used to be. But, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a titterist now <laughs> and I practice titterism mm. and that's me. And um, I know that few of the young women up in Brisbane um, have taken that on as well. So they kind of get this, you know, hashtag titterism going <laughs> mm. uh, kind of thing. So, um, 
Yeah, and really, and, and why we do that is that our battles are, are not yours. Your battles are not ours. We are very different. Yeah. We have a very different um, worldview and the way our relationships, of course, with our community, uh, our families, particularly our men, you know. Um, I would... Um, uh, someone said, you know, being the only black woman in the room, I was that for many, many years and would get howled down in the process when I'd say, you've got to include our men because, you know, they're part of the solution as well. Well, guess what, people? Men are being included now as, you know, um, uh, uh, fellas that have been wounded and need to be, get fixed up. But by the same token, of course, um, you know, there's been a lot of violence that's been acted out to, um, uh, to Aboriginal women uh, in particular. So, yeah, I just wanted to um, uh, look at a way that, you know, we could do that. And then um, Aileen Morton Robinson uh, did a, um, a critique of, uh, um, of one of my pieces of writing, and she's the only one that really got it right back there in the 80s. And I think just apart from Aileen, myself, probably uh, Melissa Lukashenko, Larissa Berent um, and others, there have been smidgens of um, black women writing about uh, feminism and, um, uh, uh, you know, the way that we can shape that. And I think that's a real... It's one of our causes that um, I think... Uh, you know, because we don't we don't call ourselves um, feminists. Um, well, the women I know too. I mean, mm. we're all different, okay. But I'd like to probably mm. hear what do you think. Amy? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think. Um, I agree with what both of you have said. No surprise. <laughs> but uh, what I'm really interested in, I think, so when feminist comes up, like I, I wore a shirt a couple of years ago um, that my friend had made. It had the word feminist on it. It said feminist AF. And um, and I was reminded again by, you know, the, the black women who guide me and went on me um, to not lose sight of for, for non-Indigenous women, feminism is about their rights. And for Indigenous mm. women, it's about our responsibilities. Mm. And so mm. I often bring it back to rights versus responsibilities because I do think um, on the note of the word feminist, I think the English language is so cheap. Like, <laughs> I just, I don't have much respect for it. And... I think it, we run into issues because of things like, all right, feminism is tightly bound up with the gender binary. And that really isn't how it works for Gomorrah. Um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's not, our words don't translate well into English. So for Tita, we have Bawa or Bawadi, if it's like a respected elder sister, but that word is broader than like a, a strictly gendered Word And so, like, I'm non-binary. I allow myself to be gendered as woman because I'm socialised as woman. But the word woman to me is a bit like the word feminist to me. Like, I think it's so narrow and cheap in the way that it has been used and perceived and, and weaponised. Um, mm. And when I think of what does feminism mean if we're allowing that word to kind of... If we're going to use that word as a lens when looking at our relationality... 
we include our men because mm. black men do not have the privileges that white men have in this country. Mm. Um, you know, we are so fearful for our nephews who are in primary school right now, but they are quite brown. And we know as soon as they hit 12, 13, those boys are going to become a threat to this society. Um, we know that statistically uh, an Indigenous man is, is more likely to be incarcerated at 19 than to be at university. And we know that these are the result of systems and intentional oppressions by the colony. So our men do not experience what white men mm. experience. So when we are fighting for gender equality, when we are fighting for our responsibilities, it ties deeply, again, with being matriarchal societies. Like when I think about the way I've been raised up and I think about the way the Aboriginal men in my family have treated me and honoured me and made room for my voice, like even as a child, as a very small, very annoying redhead-like Emily, no surprise, we're same mob. Um, <laughs> My grandfather uh, is known as Uncle Malcolm McCall. He is, he never shushed me. He took me fishing. He took me out when, like, I was always the shadow of the strong Aboriginal men in my life. And that's not just a reflection of malehood. That's a reflection of a society and a culture that honours womanhood, right? So I was allowed to be the qualities that I think whiteness says are masculine while being myself. I remember saying to my mum as a child, like, mum, I don't feel like a girl and I don't feel like a boy. And my mum would say, that's all right, you're just Amy. You know, like, I feel like our society, our cultures, the way we hold space for each other is based on responsibilities and allowing each of the young ones that we are gifted time with in our roles and our our lifetimes we make space and hold space for who they are and we're waiting to see what they might bring mm. and um I love the point you're making about that rage and watching like the old people with their softness and being so mm. confused by it because my oldest have always said you've got to build bridges Amy and I'm like burn it down and they'll be like <laughs> Build bridges, Amy. Salt the earth, you know. Um, but it is—it's that softness. And um, when I when I began in the academy as an academic, um, I, at the end of almost my first year, I scrapped my first PhD project and I shifted it to instead look at why do Indigenous women choose to be academics? Because this place is so violent. But what I kept seeing was the way the older Indigenous academic women, so people like yourself and uh, Annie, Professor Marcia Langton and mm. um, Professor Bronwyn Fredericks, had so much time. Like, they were some of the first, like, my first 20 Twitter followers, they were on that list. And, <laughs> you know, like, when I'd come to Melbourne or, or Queensland, you know, they have talked me off many a ledge. You know, I almost quit the academy a bunch of times. And the more I knew about the people who'd hurt them, the more I thought how did you have space to take a risk on loving me? Mm -hmm. How did you have time? How did you have the space in your heart to 
to talk me to stay in the academy or to like I remember one time at something and I was so close to quitting and Prof Fredericks must have just noted in her heart because she came up and she's held my hand and it's exactly what I needed mm. but I look at that and I think how <laughs> you know you've been fighting and protesting and and you've been let down by so many people and you've experienced the violence of these spaces so many times and here I was even louder and more aggressive six years ago because I'm getting softer as I get older <laughs> but we do right like we we that's the role modeling for us mm-hmm. strength through softness and heart and that pull that our community fills up for us so then we can pour out to one another and it's it's fascinating and it is a gift and feminism doesn't cut it for mm-hmm. me as a term but I think that is what we would be talking about if we said feminism which really comes back to matriarchy yeah there's one matriarchal voice that we I feel like need to pay respect to at this time and that's Michelle Turvey Mm. you mentioned those statistics before and this is a Mm. strong matriarchal Mm. voice who is saying that she's angry but she's uniting the community that in a in a in an essential way Mm. and um you know, I think in the 70s and the 80s there was a bit more of that unity. It's, 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 it's funny, like, um, you know, the, the hindsight and I don't know, sometimes maybe I'm tired from surviving that sometimes mm. I think, you know, the present day is a bit thin. Um, I'm always reminded by um, peers that, um, that it's, it's still rich. Mm. Um, but sometimes, in my experience, uh, the word matriarch feels like just a noun and not a not a verb, mm-hmm. and that's mm. a that's a sad thing. I know spirit voice is still here, and it's probably like li- choosing to live in the mid mid north, which is still. Massacre, old massacre country that hasn't um, had the chance to have the the, the conversations that I have experienced in other other places. So I can see that that sadness. I've seen in some places mm. the richness of change, and 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 when there's a shared commitment, and then when it's when when people are still afraid or haven't taken that first step that there's so much sadness in this country mm. that still needs to be um, mm. healed. And, um, you know, I, when I say I'm angry, if I was um, bad way angry, you know, there would be matches in the valves of your you know, car tyres and you'd all be have flat tyres by the time, I, you know, we left. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I use... Um, anger good way as a motivation yeah, to absolutely. get me out of bed and mm. make the changes that um, and try and fill the the voids or be that mentor I much prefer the word mentor to matriarch at the moment mm. in, my, in my own mm, in that's my own really terms. interesting yeah um, Amy you just spoke about how as you know the younger generation or, or that intergenerational care that we 
in our communities hold space for those young ones. Mm. And you reminded me of, um, I took my daughter to see the queer exhibition that was at NGV. And we were talking about different terminology and talking about what it means to be transgender. And I was trying to explain to a six-year-old, you know, what it meant um, and that some people are born a woman or some people are born male and they might not necessarily feel. And she completely, in this sentence, squashed the entire gender debate by just looking at me and saying, I have no idea what you're talking about because when I was born, I was just born a baby. And... (laughs) And I just thought in that moment, I haven't done such a bad job. (laughs) That she's just gone, well, I've just, I was born a baby. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know what I'm yet to become. And I think that's such a beautiful, Mm. um, and it brings me to thinking about raising kids and how I never heard the term, it takes a village until I had kids. Because I didn't, I, you know, that wasn't something that growing up everyone around me was saying, oh, look, you know, you've got this village of people raising you. That was just the way it was. And I think in black communities there's a far greater sense of, you know, community and security, especially in raising kids, um, that blood relations or not is not even a factor in that. Mm. And, Jackie, you talk about this, about how mothers, aunties and cousins... um, act as like our buffer zones for, um, or, you know, as our sanctuaries, I think you call it, mm. for the world that waits. And Ali, you spoke about this before when talking about your mum, or, mm. um, or it might have been your auntie, about the world outside of the apron strings. Mm. And I just think that's such, you know, a beautiful part of raising kids in black communities. It's that, you know, we hold this space and hold these sanctuaries before we send them out into a world that's very dangerous still. And, you know, I want to talk about how in raising, in the context of raising black kids, what does it mean to safeguard them from the world? And, you know, how much do we warn them about the racism and the discrimination in which living in this country rooted in white supremacy? Do we, you know, inform them about? And specifically as well, I want to talk about... um, the roles of raising black boys and men when, you know, we have a young 15-year-old boy, Cassius Turby, who's walking home from school uh, and, you know, he was raised in a very loving and and beautiful, safe home. Um, so how do we balance that raising of kids with that heavy hand that they're needed to keep safe but mm. also trying to be as carefree as we can and if that's even a possibility. Mm. I I might start and um, I think we all felt when that young boy in West Australia, um, you know, the incident that happened to him was the murder, um, or the alleged murder, whatever. We can say murder. Yeah, Yeah. we can say um, that uh, because it did happen and we thought... It takes you back to think, gosh, it could have been um, one of our, our kids, you know, um, our family members, and um, it's pretty hard to take. And the most delightful boy, he, you know, he could have been my son. When I saw him, um, and my son is now 37, and when he was four years of age, I said to him, I sat him down, actually, and I said, 
you're going to suffer racism all your life, darling. And he looked at me and didn't know what, you know, what I was saying. I said, you are, you're a little black boy. So therefore, you know, when someone calls you black, you say, um, um, you, you be proud of who you are and the colour of your skin. Um, and that, um, you know, because you come from the oldest culture on earth, 60, sort of a 60, 50,000 years by then, we know it's 65,000 and more. Um, and I sort of really drummed that into him. He has never forgotten that. And I guess he is uh, the man he is today because right from an early age, I put those tools into his head because I knew that um, um, he would suffer. And he has, you know, like uh, just very quickly, you know, going to um, high school, uh, coming home from a party with his white mates, his peer group are white. Um, uh, someone, um, they got out of the car and uh, somebody uh, scribbled uh, all over the taxi. Who did they come for? Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, well, it's funny, the, the father of this boy where they were staying was a magistrate. But he did ask me, would John go down and, and do, a, you know, a, do a witness statement? And I said, no, he won't, because he wasn't responsible. It was your son that did that. So, um, or somebody else in the group, you know. But of course, they go and pick the blackest, you know, kid. They go to that target, and he got that most of his life, actually. So that's how I, I, I guess, Bridget. It's how I tried to safeguard him mm -hmm. um, as a young black man, um, who I knew would have all these other issues that would present themselves. So. Mm -hmm. I wish Australia would remember that when you take a kid away from the family, you're also robbing the child of a village. Mm. Mm. And um, so, you know, in my um, mid-30s, I find, found out, despite everything that I'd been told, that my mother would be a drinker in a park, didn't want me, mm. all these things, and, and, and Jackie knows she definitely wasn't that, that no. person. Um, but you grow to believe these things, mm. and, um, and then it was quite shocking to, to learn that... Um, when mum was pregnant, all the cousins got together in Adelaide and had a bit of a meeting and mm. um, two uncles went away sharing and there was a trust fund and that I was so wanted. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of those uncles was Uncle Arch Barton. I was going to be his given daughter. And um, lucky got to meet him too for yes. a few years before he passed. I mean, these are tremendous people. Mm. Um, and um, <sighs> matriarchy, us women, we need to get together. We need to um, find a stronger voice, united. There's lots of other um, uh, women and um, their children coming into this country from worn-torn, um, countries and others, uh, other situations who are, who are suffering and get together to um, try and stop the government from still removing 
children from mm. families. There has to be a better um, solution. How come men are making the um, decisions to close down women's refuge and making which programs are going to work and whatever? Like, um, yeah, I don't know. Mm. If we're going to talk about um, matriarchy, I'd like to see a, um, a unified, respectful, equal voice for all women in Australia to start being strong and making solutions. Mm. Um, this will probably be our last question, and apologies, I should have said at the beginning, but we're not going to have a Q&A. Um, we just don't have time. Um, but we've all, you've all spoken and paid respects to First Nations matriarchs in your life, um, and those that have come before, you know, these matriarchs are, are the ones that have held the front line of social justice movements. They're the ones that are disrupting the colonial um, process. And I just wanted to ask, you know, why is it the black women doing it? And, you know, why are we the ones on the front line? Like what led us there? And that's a very loaded question, but I'm, I'm, I guess, just thinking about the matriarchs in my life and what the driving force is for those women to be on the front line, showing up and doing it. It's always black women. And so I just thought if we could make reference to, to any in your lives or... It's love. Mm. And for colonisation, we've been doing that for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years before we were colonised. And so it's just a natural practice. Mm. Mm. And then this, you know, very challenging chapters have happened in the last 230 years. But I think the practice has always been there. Mm. You know... Um, it's we have strong DNA. I didn't grow up with my family, but when I met my family, we could recognise, mm. like, oh, that stubbornness, <laughs> that laughter, that those bad jokes, yeah. you know, the um, the uh, the creativity, the drive. We could you could see that in in mm. in the family, um, that hadn't been um, squashed. Um, yeah, it's a it's a, just a strong. DNA, mm. we're First Nations, mm. we love this, we, we, you know, the, the earth speaks. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mm. think Australia forgets sometimes that we are another culture. Oh, yeah, we're all friends now. No, but there's still a cultural difference. <laughs> yeah, I think there's two parts to what you're saying, Bridge. So the, the why do we do it and why are we on the front line? Mm -hmm. And um, like what Ali's saying, like we know through like Eurocentric sciences now what we've always known, which is cell memory. So you live with at least seven generations of memory in your cells. So while you were in your mother, if you're someone who has ovaries, like your eggs were already in you. So my eldest mm -hmm. child is non-binary, but they're, they're a female person and they already had their eggs in them when they were in me mm -hmm. and I already had them in me when I was in my mother and my mother was a strong um, black woman but so we have our cell memory right and Gomorrah we're warrior women we're warmer, we're warrior in our and so I think we, we have that in us anyway mm -hmm. um, so love 
is doing whatever is required of the time as an action. It's a verb, like what Ali was saying about it being a, like matriarchy being a verb, not a noun. Love is a verb, not a noun. And like, I don't want to fight. I, I have multiple medical conditions because of the amount of stress and fight and fatigue in my life. We mm. die young mm. because of the stress of this mm. fucking colony. I don't want to fight, but if my choices are fighting for my community and for my family or not doing it, there is more comfort in the fight because that is my obligation, that is my responsibility. Um, my PhD was on why do Indigenous women choose to be in the academy because it does not pay well and it mm. is quite violent. And that's what I went and I asked with a strengths-based approach. And I found out, we, we already know this stuff, but I found out in an academic way, so, like, you, you can cite it now, like, people can't argue as freely with me on these points, but that, firstly, we are there because we love our communities, we are there because we are using every weapon available to us to care for and fight for our families, our communities, our healings, our lands, our waterways, our skies, our dreamings. And that is one set of tools available to us. But it also found that we are still treated as the help, that it didn't matter how high up the Indigenous woman was that I spoke to, they were being treated like the help. And that is because we are not treated as equal. We are not included in, and it's not just white women. I did a panel earlier this year um, on feminism um, <laughs> that was run by two women of colour, not Indigenous, but two women of colour. And I brought up on that panel that when they talk about the salary gap that between men and women, they do not measure the salary gap between Indigenous women and non-Indigenous women. And then mm. I took one of my fellow panellists out to dinner that night because she was so much younger and less experienced than me. And so I was doing the matriarchal role modelling that I've been taught. I took this non-Indigenous woman out to dinner and I was paid for her dinner. Right? <laughs> and she turns to me at dinner and she says, Amy, you brought this point up on the panel about the pay and I've just got the worst feeling can you tell me how much they paid you for the panel? And I told her, and even though I have a whole ass PhD more than her and 10 years older than her and three years of television experience, she was paid double. So anyway, I made her pay for dinner. Um, but that's the right thing to do. If you're the non-Indigenous person, work out, like ask. Ask, why isn't there another, why isn't there an Indigenous person here? You know, we have that saying, there should never just be um, nothing about us without us and never just one in the room, right? Mm. But also, mm -hmm. if you want us in the room, a coffee's not going to cut it. And I swear to God, the next person who undercuts me is getting <laughs> named and shamed. Um, but, but, this is, <laughs> but, but this is why, like, that solidarity, they were two women of colour. I foolishly expected better. Mm. But it was wrong of me because I know that's not what the data says. The data says that this is what will happen, that again and again, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and women are at the bottom. We're at the bottom of all of the studies of people's preferences, respect levels, all of those kinds of things. It doesn't matter how many degrees we get, we are still seen as the help by too many people. And so we have to be at the front line, whether that's writing beautiful, powerful poetry, whether that's being historians, whether that's being academics, whether that's being homemakers who is spending as much time as possible 
guarding up our children and giving them the tools that they need to survive the colony, we are forced to be at the front line. I don't want to be the first one. I want to run a toy shop, okay? But I can't do that. I'll never get to do that in my lifetime because we have more important work to do. Um, but I think that there is two parts to that question. It's why? Because of love and the front line because fucking colony. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a pretty beautiful way to end the- yeah. <laughs> um, before we finish up, I, I, it's not often you can sit on a panel with women of this calibre, feel so incredibly safe, so in the presence of just such powerful um, power and knowledge. Um, you know, I am the youngest on the panel, might surprise you all. Um, <laughs> and it has just been a real honour to sit here amongst these three um, wonderful, wonderful people. Um, and I just want to say thank you to them. So if we could just give our panellists a big round of applause. Thank you, everybody. This event was presented in partnership with Black and Bright as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program, supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.